Welcome to Real Time, a podcast for and about realtors. I'm your host, Erin Davis, and it's great to have you sharing this time with us. We explore everything in this podcast from living green to marketing tips, design, and so much more. On episode 21 of Real Time today, we're joined by Dr. Nahid Dosani to complement Realtors Care Week 2021. Dr. Dasani, a Toronto-based physician and humanitarian, has been making headlines and, more importantly, a real difference while providing palliative care to the homeless and vulnerably housed since 2014. In this episode, we're going to explore Dr. Dasani's perspective on the state of homelessness in Canada, the impacts of health and social system inequities. We're going to talk about PEACH, and it stands for Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless, and how Canadians, we, can seek humility and empathy in supporting marginalized people. Dr. Dasani, thank you so much for taking some of your precious time to be with us here today. It means a lot to our members and to me, so thank you for this. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You are amazing. And as a physician, you must have always wanted to help people. But tell us about your journey in medicine, doctor, and what drew you to caring for the homeless and vulnerably housed in particular. Yeah, you know, um, I'm the son of two refugees who came to Canada in the 1970s from a country called Uganda in Africa. And so my parents came to Canada as refugees uh, with, you know, nothing, um, fleeing war and persecution. And so my upbringing was really focused on, you know, justice, community well-being, and, you know, what social change could really inspire. And um, I, you know, originally wanted to pursue maybe like journalism, maybe law, but then found myself in healthcare and in medicine. And, um it was a, a turning point for me working as a resident doctor at the University of Toronto in my training um, in my first year of residency, actually, where I met a man named Terry who presented to the shelter I was working at. And he presented in pain crisis because he had a widespread head and neck cancer. He had been on the streets for over 15 years. He had a longstanding mental illness, schizophrenia, and was actually diagnosed with his cancer a year before um, at a local cancer center. And um, unfortunately, due to his mental health, he wasn't able to follow up for appointments and so the tumor grew and so he started to experience pain and he did what any one of us would do he went hospital to hospital er to er walking clinic to walking clinic seeking the kind of pain control that anybody in this country should have access to terry was denied access to pain medicines and i could read this in the medical notes and the charts um maybe it was because of stigma maybe it was because of bias but he's found himself in our care on this day and i remember building a, a somewhat of a trust with him in the sense that he promised he'd start some pain medicines um, the next day. Um, and uh, so I got to the shelter early the next day to, to work with him, and I couldn't find him anywhere, and I had found out that he had died. Mm. He, had, uh, he had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs. He had turned to the best pain relief that he knew. It was too little, too late. And this was a life-changing event that showed me that people experiencing homelessness lack access to care, and particularly people who experience homelessness lack access to palliative care. It's a human rights issue. I think that what you said that that jumped out to me there was that he went hospital to hospital, and right away people thought that he was just a guy there trying to get a fix. Would that be sort of a summary of his situation before something like Peach could have intervened? 
Yeah, you know, this is a great question because many people listening might think, well, he had access to healthcare because we all have access to healthcare. It's quote unquote universal in Canada, but that's actually um, a common misnomer in the sense that there are still biases, stigma, and discrimination that exists in our healthcare facilities and in our healthcare programs uh, for people who are unhoused, people who use drugs, people with mental illness, racialized folks. I'm sure we're going to talk about this throughout the conversation, but you know, while we may all technically have equal access to healthcare, it doesn't mean we have equitable access to healthcare. And Terry needed equitable, justice-based access to healthcare, and particularly palliative care. Can you define the difference between equal and equitable, perhaps in Terry's case or in some example that can illustrate that for us, doctor? For sure. I love this um, contrast and comparison because I think it's such a crucial uh, pillar of understanding when it comes to why this kind of work is so important. So our healthcare system, you know, is is pretty good at being equal. Most people in this country get the same things to be happy and healthy. But that doesn't work for everybody, especially for people who might need more, like someone who lives on the streets or in shelters or someone who lives in poverty. People like this need equitable care. They need a health system that gives people what they need to be happy and healthy. And in justice-based health systems, that takes us one step further, where our systems are rearranged in a way that people are empowered and supported with the resources to make their own healthy lifestyle choices when they want, how they want, where they want. It's an empowering way. So we need to go from equality to equity to justice. And unfortunately, Terry didn't have access to equity-based palliative care or justice-based palliative care. And that's why he died. And his death has become, um, you know, I carry it with me everywhere I go. It's in my heart right now, Aaron. Um, and it's a big reason we do the work we do. So his death and that brief sort of ships in the night that you had with this man has turned into a catalyst for your life. Yeah, you know, a turning point, um, a life-changing event um, that led to me becoming really focused on the issue of homelessness and healthcare. I spent my entire residency uh, learning more about the intersections of healthcare for people experiencing homelessness, and then later uh, applied for a palliative medicine residency at the University of Toronto, where I spent my entire training program figuring out how we could make and inspire a change. And in July of 2014, with colleagues at the Inner City Health Associates in downtown Toronto, we developed the PEACH program, Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless, a mobile street and shelter-based palliative care program that provides healthcare for people, um, whether they're under a bridge, on the street, in a shelter, so no person falls through the cracks. It started a very basic with um, myself and a street nurse named Mamrug Ahmed driving around in a Honda Civic. And, you know, I just actually got rid of that Honda Civic uh, very recently, <laughs> so I had that for a long time. But the program has grown. And um, in 2021, we have a pretty robust program. We care for between 120, 130 clients at any time. We have a health navigator on the team. We have a nurse coordinator, five palliative care physicians, a peach psychiatrist. We also have had iterations of peer workers, people with lived experiences on the program and integration with our home and community care colleagues, including you know physiotherapy and PSW supports um, to really meet people where they're at. Incredible. And without being too precious, you literally grew peach from the pit, the hole, the deficit that was on the Toronto streets in terms of the state of palliative care for the homeless and vulnerability. How many other people were paying attention to this when the whole issue of Terry and your residency sort of coincided, doctor? 
You know, the issue of homelessness and healthcare, um, and particularly access to palliative care, has actually been written about um, around the world for quite some time. It's not a new concept per se. A lot of people around the world have written editorials and commentaries in the literature um, and even popular, you know, media articles about the fact that we need to do better. But what was lacking was a real robust view of how we could clinically create models to make this happen. In most um, jurisdictions across North America, Europe, and Australia, there is, you know, access to community-based palliative care. But what doesn't actually happen is that those community-based programs orient themselves towards people who live in respite shelters, drop-ins, rooming houses, and, and really where, you know, unhoused populations reside. Um, but also, you know, bringing it together with a trauma-informed approach to care, recognizing that many people who live on the streets and in shelters have experienced significant loss and trauma, and also recognizing that people who live on the streets and in shelters also are people who use drugs. And a lot of the time they don't get access to palliative care because the requirement for access to palliative care is stopping the use of drugs. And we know that doesn't work. Abstinence doesn't work. So we provide harm reduction palliative care. And I think it's the combination of those concepts that make Peach unique. Well, Peach is unique, as a matter of fact, in all humility, and I really want you to blow your own horn here, Doctor. It has been brought to the attention of cities worldwide, has it not? Yeah, we're really lucky and feel honored to be part of a, a network of family of programs um, who that exist in cities all around the world, right here in Canada. Uh, colleagues in Victoria, Edmonton, and Calgary, to name a few, have developed um, programs that feature mobile supports and mobile programs for people who are in need of palliative care um, and provide palliative care for structurally vulnerable people. And the model has actually been replicated in cities like Seattle and Brisbane, Australia, um, and, and even as far as ways is England as well. And so th this really is a, a global health issue. It's this intersection of the need for palliative care and the need for homeless health care intersecting together. Um, and it really makes a lot of sense. I think it's important for us to reflect on the fact that people who have experience homelessness are 28 times more likely to have hepatitis C virus, five times more likely to have heart disease, four times more likely to have cancer. And the average life expectancy for people who live on the streets and in shelters is, is actually 34 to 47 years old. And when you look at the life expectancy of Canadians, that's can range from between 77 and 82 years old. So homelessness cuts a person's lifespan by half. It is a terminal diagnosis of the social determinants of health, how we live, learn, work, and play. And this is really how we conceptualize the issue. 34 to 47. That's, mm -hmm. that's an, an incredible number just to stop and look at. It's almost as though being unhoused or vulnerably housed in itself is a deadly disease. Totally. And then when you throw in the addition of a life-limiting illness like a cancer or end-stage kidney disease or COPD mm. um, or liver failure, for example, you really see mortality go up. We recognize that to be on the streets, to live in a shelter is already taking years off of your life. And then when you have another medical illness, it's clear why access to healthcare is key, of course, but access to palliative care is an important component of any uh, approach that supports health care of people experiencing homelessness and focuses on human rights and, of course, people's dignity and their quality of life. Back with Dr. Nahid Dasani in a moment. 
He's a man who, with his team, makes a difference on the streets of his city, throughout the country, and the world. And we're going to talk about that and so much more on this special edition of Real Time that comes while we're marking Realtors Care Week. Realtors Care is a national guiding principle celebrating the great charitable work done by you as a member of the Canadian realtor community. Help raise awareness for the causes closest to your heart and home by sharing your story using hashtag Realtors Care on your favorite social media platform. As we return now to our chat with Dr. Nahid Dosani, I asked him what impact this PEACH program has had and just what he has seen with his own eyes. It's a fair question. You know, what does the PEACH program really do? And, you know, at at the outset, it's important to recognize that we provide medical care and those pieces are key. Um, You know, we also, because we're a palliative care program, prioritize people's pain and symptom management and particularly their quality of life, um, which is, you know, bread and butter for what palliative care and healthcare programs really do. Um, But it's so much more than the medical model. Um, It's about meeting people where they're at. You know, when I talked about trauma-informed care, that's really supporting people and connecting with people. It's allowing people to heal, even if they're really sick, giving people a hand to hold or someone to talk to when no one else is around. It can also be very practical, particularly, you know, when working this with this population, palliative care is not just providing the medical care, it's actually ensuring people have the basic necessities of life, like a roof over their head. So finding housing is a huge part of what we do, securing food for people, ensuring people have money in their bank account. Um, People have, you know, social supports and and human connection when they need them. There's an aspect of this that's that's psychological or even emotional or spiritual care in nature to recognize that there's a higher power or something out there that's driving our soul and our will so that people can heal. And, you know, each team member, depending on their discipline, leverages these different components of that holistic, you know, bio, psycho, social, spiritual model to make this work. You mentioned the spiritual aspect of it. How do you get up every morning knowing that this is what you're going to be doing? Is it the hope or the difference that fuels you? Or how do you do it, Dr. Dasani? I think that's a very fair question, too. Um, You know, at the outset of that question, I will say that a lot of the time I have difficulty. Um, and I, and I, I'm going to be just vulnerable with you for a second, Erin, to say that this is not easy. Um, mm-hmm. Our team sees a lot of suffering um, in different ways. Um, remember, we're dealing with people who have fallen through the gaps again and again and again, and then towards the end of life are falling through the gaps again at a time when no one should ever fall through the gap. Right, right, and and you know if we can't get the dying part right to help people, like how are we going to work on the living part? And so it's frustrating, it's sad, it, it, it's heavy at times. But you know, um, on the flip side, you know what drives me is that in just a short amount of time, just a few years, you know, a few people who care in healthcare and social services have come together to develop a model of care that inspires change, a new way of thinking, a new way of being, and we're doing it. And then we're doing it in a lot of cities across. Canada now and now people around the world are doing it like what's not to be inspired by mm. the other thing that really drives me is that you know this work is not being done in isolation it's not like I'm doing my clinical work and then going home and hanging out it's tied to advocacy and I could never imagine doing um, this work um, in an isolated you know way it's it's connected to advocacy around anti-homelessness uh, policies 
around um, uh, ending poverty, because a lot of Canadians don't realize that homelessness is a human-made problem. It was created by humans, and it can be ended with through policy choices like housing first or housing for all, which actually saves the system a lot of money. So, you know, I advocate in a systemic and structural way um, at a population level, and that makes the clinical work make a lot more sense because you know you're working on something better. And we're going to get to that in terms of integrating it with our message here today for Realtors Care Week. Let me go back to the personal for a moment. And just as you open the door to vulnerability, which, of course, shows such great courage, what kind of life does this leave you with? Do you have time for your own personal life? Balance is really important. And sometimes when you're in the thick of these cases and you're in it deep with people who are dealing with such strife, it's hard to see that. But wellness and and resilience is really important. We're hot off the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, we're still in the COVID-19 pandemic. Let's be real, right? And more than ever before, health workers have been pushed in a way that, you know, we haven't been pushed before. Uh, I don't like calling it burnout because I think that places the blame on colleagues. I think a lot of people, including folks who work on the Peach Team, including myself, are at times facing moral injury and even compassion fatigue because Mm -hmm. this work is heavy, because it's hard. We're not getting breaks. And, you know, specifically for people who work Work on the front lines of homelessness because, you know, the policy solutions are not being put into place to prevent homelessness. So our work and our services are being accessed more than ever before. And that's a scary thought. But, you know, um, I got to say that there's hope. And one of the things that we do as a team to support each other is to support our grief. We recognize very early on in this journey that people working in healthcare and in social services, providing a palliative care for people in the community needed help and support around their grief and their loss experiences, particularly when, when we were supporting clients who ended up dying. And so we developed these things called grief circles. They're actually kind of ceremonies that happen when a client dies. Uh, we will will descend on a respite shelter or drop-in. We will hold a minute of silence. We will light a candle and then we will cry together. We'll laugh together. We'll tell stories of what it was like to care for the person that we cared for. And then we'll think about how to, you know, not just remember or reflect on that care, but how to renew and reinvest in each other. We call it the four R's. And then we'll hold that moment of silence and put that candle out and go out and do it again. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we had these grief circles virtually. And actually, the Peace Program got utilized in the city of Toronto to actually hold these grief circles for health workers working in the COVID recovery models, maybe not working in palliative care, but people who are working just in the healthcare models for people experiencing homelessness because of all the overdose deaths that we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, do I think grief circles are the answer to to your question? No, I mean, it's scratching at the surface, but we need to develop safe, structured ways for people to address their grief. And me having that space through the grief circles with the PEACH program helps a lot. Good. It's good to hear that there are ways to take care of you. Because, I mean, we've all been so loud and rah-rah and banging the pots and pans and it's quieted down. And then you start wondering who is taking care of the caregivers. We're so grateful to Dr. Dasani for sharing his passion and commitment today towards helping the most vulnerable among us. His chat with us is complimenting Realtors Care Week. And you know, there are incredible stories that you can access by following Realtors Care on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and using your own hashtag Realtors Care. Now, back to Dr. Nahid Dasani. Tell us, Doctor, how has the pandemic impacted Canada's unhoused and vulnerably housed populations? 
specifically? You mentioned the drug overdoses. In what other ways? Because so many of us have just been tied up with our own dramas and mourning and challenges during this time. People experiencing homelessness were hanging by a thread before the pandemic. And that thread essentially snapped. People were disconnected from their social and healthcare supports um, via their respite shelters or drop-ins. And uh, many of these facilities um, and institutions that support people who are unhoused had to close or reduce services due to physical distancing. Remember, this was before we had a vaccine and and this was very hard for people. Um, you know, we ended up seeing more people than ever before on the streets and in parks. Um, but what we did see, you know, to be positive about things was an incredible response um, that was collaborative from our health facilities and health workers to social care agencies to activists to government agencies to faith groups who in different cities and towns across Canada said we need to respond to support people experiencing homelessness and to make this work to save lives. We saw the development of hotels and motel uh, recovery programs. I had the distinct pleasure and continue to be the medical director for the region of Peel's COVID-19 isolation housing program. So the development of these programs that we saw spread up all across Canada. And this was an amazing feat. It actually showed me that there's a lot more ability for us to collaborate and make magic happen than we thought. Before COVID, it was always there aren't resources or we can't make that happen. But look, COVID showed we could do it. And I always say, COVID has proven we can cure homelessness if we really want to. Um, mm. And that's, that's really exciting. On the flip side, and it's more of a negative tone, I also saw, you know, the increase in criminalization of poverty uh, through and through. In cities like Toronto, the people I care for used to maybe get ticketed if they were panhandling. Now we saw actually violent encampment clearings um, by the city of Toronto and Toronto police. And this happened in many cities across Canada where they were actually sending drones horses, police, in, in militarized operations uh, to remove people. In, in one kind of you know report uh, done by the media here in Toronto, they removed 60 people from parks in Toronto and spent $2 million. And that equates to about like $33,000 per person. Imagine if that money was just spent on housing. So well, in one way, we saw the rise of empathy, compassion, and collaboration as magic to respond to the needs of people experiencing homelessness. Our cities and, and police forces across Canada actually criminalized poverty in a way that I've never seen before. And, th and this should be concerning to people who are listening to this discussion. So now that our eyes are open, what would you suggest we do so that we don't see a clearing like we saw before, but that the city gets to sort of reclaim the open spaces and safe spaces for families? Where's the compromise? Where's the common ground, doctor? What would you have done? Well, I think we need to really ask ourselves about these incredible programs that have de been developed across the country. Um, you know, these COVID recovery models uh, are potentially new best practices that will allow us to help people off the street and give them a pathway and then provide social and healthcare supports for them. And then of course, you know, hopefully, you know, support their and empower them to be on a pathway towards housing from those sites. Many of the leases on these COVID recovery models across Canada are actually ending very soon. And I would be really disappointed if, you know, cities across Canada and our country said, yeah, you know, that was COVID, COVID's over now, like, you know, go back to the streets and in shelters, go back to how things were. That No, the, the, our legacy, the silver lining of a post-recovery world is that we can actually end 
homelessness. I think we also need to really think about, you know, um, some of the assumptions we make um, when we're having these conversations. Some of the politicians, you know, made statements that these people were um, making parks dangerous. Well, in actuality, you know, there's very few reports of that. When you look at the data, there was accusations that they were starting fires. There was, again, very little data for, to prove that. There's a lot of bias and stigma and discrimination that comes in, in into that. The other thing is just to recognize that these are people with complex issues, complex feelings of hurt and, and loss and trauma, sometimes mental illness, other physical illnesses, and we need to build relationships with them. And, you know, of course, you know, um, there is a desire to get people housed and, and connected, but if people don't feel safe with their options, we need to listen to them. Instead of putting the onus on people who are in encampments to find the solution, let's put them back on our politicians who um, have to respond to these feelings and just say it's their duty to, to make these spaces safe. And that means in increasing the amount of affordable housing supply in this country and making sure that this housing supply is high quality and safe for people because housing is a human right. And you've also said that housing is health care. Can you explain this and why you believe this, doctor? I think in 2021, we're pretty much in agreement that the social factors that impact health care impact health outcomes. This includes people who don't have a home, people who don't have money, people who don't have access to food security. And so, you know, homelessness or houselessness, the state of being itself is a risk factor on health. And I shared some of the statistics earlier, you know, with you just to say that, you know, just not having a home itself is a serious and often life limiting disease. It can take 50% of a person's lifespan away right so so when you actually provide housing and then you also provide access to social and healthcare supports people can dramatically heal from their mental health to their physical health to their just feeling dignity in society and feeling a sense of purpose. You can really work to heal people, even if they're really sick. And so when we say housing is healthcare, you know, we're trying to really frame housing as a healthcare issue because it actually has impact on healthcare outcomes, not to mention the, the outcomes it has on society. It saves money. We know through the housing first study done called the at-home Chesua demonstration project, um, which was a three-year study done in Canada uh, between 2014 and 2017. We know that for every $1 that went into housing for people with severe mental illness, Canada got $1.87 back. So not only does it make people feel better, it saves us money in the long run. And it has the potential to save us millions and even billions of dollars over the years. So that's kind of what we mean when we answer that question. Coming up, using social media to spread the word and how the doctor uses various platforms to lift himself up and get his message out. You can do it too. When you volunteer your time, make a donation or raise funds for a cause you truly believe in, you're making a difference in your community. So post that inspiration and have an impact by sharing your story online using hashtag RealtorsCare. Now you've got a big following on social media, Doctor, which you use to help destigmatize homelessness and poverty. Do you think the message is getting through? And how do we go about becoming better informed about these issues? 
I'm always honored to uh, be supported by a community that just really cares. I'm, I'm actually blown away, you know, at the emails and, and messages and, and tweets I get and posts on Instagram and people commenting about how they believe in this issue too. And they believe in, that health equity is crucial to a brighter future. Um, but, you know, the reality is if you go and survey most Canadians, um, uh, many people still believe that people who experience homelessness are lazy. Many people believe they did it to themselves. Many people believe people are choosing to be on the streets and in shelters. And having cared for so many people over the years, I've never met one person who wanted to be in the situation that they're in. Don't get me wrong. Some of the people I care for may have made a bad decision, a decision you and I might not make, perhaps. Um, but really, there are structural factors at play that cause homelessness. So we need to destigmatize homelessness from a person, you know, who did it to themselves kind of view or blaming people for their situation and start looking at things structurally because we know that there is not enough affordable housing in this country to support people. And we know that there has been a weakening social safety net at federal, provincial, regional and city levels over the last three decades around healthcare, social assistance, pharmacare, um, uh, social supports. And this has led to this trajectory of people experiencing homelessness. And we're seeing a growing trend of people who are older and frail, who are experiencing homelessness for the first time after the age of 50. And this is a growing trend. And this is one of the ailments of capitalism on steroids. And we really need to really think about that. So I hope that, you know, through my posts on social media, we're able to send those messages across. And sometimes it's telling a compassionate story that, that derives empathy from people. And sometimes it's just using capital letters hmm. and yelling because you just don't think there's no other response. There's no other right. way to respond, right? <laughs> so it depends on the day, maybe the hour. Yeah, right. So are you seeing progress in terms of people's perspectives or willingness to help? I'm thinking, you know, you don't have to be a Dr. Dasani or a nurse Ahmed or somebody with a degree in order to help you. So are you seeing more people saying, what can I do? I want to dive in. I think the COVID-19 pandemic shined a light on inequities in a way that we have not seen um, for quite some time. So people are more aware of these issues and that might be a silver lining of what happened during COVID. The fact that, you know, despite the inequities we saw, we did see more focus on these discussions and that is power in and of itself. I was blown away to see the response when, you know, uh, cities like Halifax and Toronto and other cities, you know, actually criminalized poverty and, and supported violent encampment clearings. We saw the public come out, actually step out to support their unhoused neighbors. We saw people tweeting, posting on social media. We saw outrage. So yes, I do believe there's progress and, and people's perspectives are changing. And in terms of how Canadians can become better informed, I think there's um, often a desire to go out and act. And I'd say the first step is to become informed. So to listen first. So I'd encourage people to visit homelesshub.ca, the York University Observatory on Homelessness, which is a great repository of information on homelessness, both social health and, and other spheres. I'd also encourage people to check out the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, who is doing excellent work to advocate for strategies and pathways to ending homelessness through policy, through real change um, on the streets, in shelters, in our communities. And, and their website is a really great resource um, as well. And I think those two resources have been helpful for me and also just seeking out locally who are your local respite shelters drop-ins who are the activists who are doing this work follow them support them support their causes in your local communities because they need your support to derive health equity in your community 
That may go hand in hand with this next question for you, because, of course, as you know, this episode is complementing Realtors Care Week 2021. And during this, real estate boards, associations and their realtor members are making a collective impact volunteering in support of housing and shelter-related charities right across Canada. So your advice to any organization, institution, or individual doctor looking to volunteer their times or resources, go to homelesshub.ca, Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Anything else that you can recommend? Look, first, you know, the realtor community is um, a very special community. And I'd first appeal to them by saying realtors are as much or more than anyone else, a person who understands how much a home can mean to a person. But, you know, there are thousands of Canadians who are dealing with life-threatening illnesses, the illnesses of not having a home or what that means for them. So, you know, you can play a real role. You can actually support the creation of new affordable housing. Um, You can help on a policy level. Can you help local charities? You know, realtors in Canada are often community leaders and influencers. Can you help to create and support community leaders who are working to end homelessness? Can you help to rally their communities, their communications and their actions? You know, realtors are also respected voices on housing issues. So when the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness or other, you know, institutions or organizations worked on policy, you know, can you be powerful? Can you be influential? Can you join us in our campaigns? And then finally, a lot of the time, the solution is, you know, really supporting people with resources. And many of the campaigns that we're working on need money, need support, donations. And so, you know, there's like a bazillion realtors in Canada. You guys are awesome. And your money and supports can really actually make a huge change. I think any opportunity to speak out around policies that will create a more affordable housing supply or directly support through in-kind support, these campaigns will make a huge difference. We need you. Ah, what a great message. How do we go about ensuring, Doctor, that our support is meaningful for both parties? You know, that we gain empathy and perspective as volunteers, not just kind of just showing up and getting that reward of making a difference. What's your recommendation there to find that support meaningful for both sides? For sure. I I reflect on two concepts here. The first is that sometimes when we go out to do good for communities that experience structural vulnerabilities, sometimes we project what we feel is the best thing for a community on that community. So, um, you know, I'd ask you to not project what you think is best for people experiencing homelessness, but seek out um, the answer to that question. You know, what is it that the community I live in needs? Um, and, you know, you'll you'll learn, right? If you support your local shelter as respites, drop-ins, housing agencies, um, case management programs, they'll tell you like, you know, we need money today because we are out of our compassionate funding or we're doing a sock drive. People need socks. We need socks. We don't need shirts. We need socks, you know, like, you know, very specifically, right? So listen to the communities that do this work and what they need and they will guide you. The second concept is reflect on your vulnerability. I will say that COVID-19 put us all in very unique situations where we all had this experience where no matter, you know, whether you were, you know, lived in a home and felt very supportive or you lived on the street or in a shelter, everyone felt 
vulnerable during this time. It was hard not to because of this virus and this pandemic. And I, I know people were thinking about what their mortality or their death might look like. People were thinking about like, what if I go to hospital? Tap into that vulnerability. I know that many people have kind of moved on and you know life is moving on, but don't lose sight of what it was like to feel vulnerable. Because if you tap into that, you have the potential to derive empathy and compassion for a community in Canada that does not have a home and do not have homes because of structural issues. Tap into that, tap into your empathy and compassion, and I know you'll find the way. That's amazing. It really is the strength and vulnerability. And so many people just moved on from it, said, okay, what's next? We're going to be okay. But uh, remembering how we felt the most vulnerable, we felt most of us in our lives. So thank you for reminding us of that. And as we wrap up our chat for today, Doctor, and thank you again so much for your time, it's uh, it's amazing to look at the calendar, and it's felt like the longest year, and yet it's kind of amazing that 2021 is almost done. What has been your biggest takeaway from this year of so many images? How are you hoping to finish it off? I learned that despite our best efforts um, in society, even in the midst of a serious pandemic like COVID-19, we may have tried to all be in it together, but we were not, right? Mm -hmm. Some of us were in uh, yachts thriving through this pandemic and others were in life rafts barely surviving. Mm -hmm. And what I do appreciate is that we can have a conversation about this. Like I can say this to you, Aaron, and this resonates, right? Like it's hard to deny that that's true. Like we saw the outcomes on, you know, people's experience during COVID-19. But the silver lining for me is at least we're having the conversation. At least inequity is on the radar for people. It's, it, we're have look, we're, we're doing this recording, right? Like it's, mm. it's, it shows me that we are moving towards a society where we are thinking about the impact of a lack of housing, poor social assistance rates, pharmacare and the need for pharmacare for people. You know, we're thinking about food insecurity in unique ways and other kind of social inequities that really are impacting people in our communities. And it's everybody's business. Everybody's responsible to derive equity and justice for the people around you. Do you think it's possible? I do. I really do. You know, there's something called the spirit level and there's a famous book that was written about it that um, societies that are more equitable, you know, people actually tend to be more happy. There's less crime. The spirit level rises, right? I actually, I'm, I'm hopeful of the fact that people recognize that when we are more um, connected, when we are more socially supported, and when people are not marginalized, people do better in, in all aspects of the world and in society. And if, you know, this little dive into the world of palliative care and what it's like to support people who experience homelessness gets us there or one step towards that place, then, you know, I think this was a good time. I think this was totally worth it. Oh, what a great conversation. Thank you so much for honoring us with this. Thank you, Dr. Dasani, so much. Thank you, Erin. Really appreciate it. And to all the realtors out there, thank you so much for everything you do. I appreciate your time. As we do appreciate yours, doctor. Not that there's a lot of it. Learn more about Dr. Nahid Dasani and how you can help him make a difference right across Canada. And as he stresses, locally where you are. Again, that website he mentioned is homelesshub.ca and check out the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Real Time is a production of Alphabet Creative, Real Family Productions, and Rob Whitehead. I'm Erin Davis, and we invite you to join us for our next episode of Real Time, 
brought to you by the Canadian Real Estate Association when we'll sit down with the incredible Stefan Swanepoel, a leading visionary of real estate trends. It promises to be exciting and you don't want to miss it. And so you don't, because we know you're busy. Subscribe to our channels on Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher. And we'll talk to you again soon on Real Time. Thanks for coming by.